HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. These programs are sponsored by listeners like you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Washington Wine. Download the Map My Washington Wine app. It's Map My W-A Wine and get all the Washington Wine right in your hand. Washington Wine, this is now. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and here we are in the height of summertime as I record this. And in summertime, end of summertime, end of August, counties across the U.S. are gearing up for their annual state fairs. Have you ever been to a county fair or a state fair? For many people, it's an event that's anticipated throughout the year until it happens again. And these county fairs began hundreds of years ago as agricultural fairs, sharing skills and techniques of farming and showcasing livestock and produce and competing, of course, for the best of show. Many of the fairs have grown over the years to include carnival games and rides. And of course, there is food from pie-eating contests to the strange carnival runway concoctions like fried Oreos or fried pickles, a lot of fried foods, but they are definitely an American tradition. And many of these fairs have had a continuous run of 200 years. So if you are around a more a rural town or, or even an area where smaller cities combine and have their county fair, if not a, uh, a state fair, then it's something you really do need to experience. So I decided it would be good to do a show about county and state fairs and the American tradition. Then I realized that last year, Capri Cafaro, host of HRN's Eat Your Heartland Out, recorded just such a show about summer state and county fairs and the history so I thought it would be a terrific way to get to know her podcast for all of you listeners. And what could be more perfect in August to just replay this episode that she did? There's nothing quite as American as the county or state fair. 
Capri welcomes Marla Calico, President and CEO of the International Association of Fairs and Expositions. Who knew? She discusses the history behind the agricultural fairs and how fairs have both changed and stayed the same over the years. And then you'll meet Carol Kratz and Drake Hawkinson, authors who traveled the country to capture the cultural essence of county fairs for their book, Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. So whether it's an animal judging, a pie-eating contest, or one of those fried Oreos that attracts you, you can hear about it on this show. Capri Cafaro's show, Eat Your Heartland Out, is a series dedicated to highlighting the rich yet overlooked culinary depth of the American Midwest. And although these county and state fairs go much further than the Midwest, particularly in in the, the East Coast in New England where they began, they are truly a a very strong tradition throughout the Midwest. And it was only right that she should showcase this on her podcast. Capri is a Midwestern girl at heart, having a native of Ohio, and she has been doing her show on Heritage Radio Network for well over a year. Thanks for joining us on this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we are embracing the essence of America's heartland through celebrating the iconic tradition of county and state fairs. As a former elected official in Ohio, I spent many a summer at county fairs all across my area. And at each one, there was always something I waited for all year long and looked forward to that. Like the milkshakes from the dairy barn at the Ashtabula County Fair. And I wanted to do this episode to bring that joy and sense of community that I experienced and that's embodied in county fairs to a wider audience. So to better understand the county fair, I assembled a group of experts to bring these colorful and flavorful events to light. Catherine Lambrecht, the president of the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance, introduces us to the annual state fair family heirloom recipe competition. Authors Drake Hokanson and Carol Krotz bring us from Alaska to Indiana through their book, Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. But first, let's bring in Marla Calico, the president and CEO of the International Association of Fairs and Expositions to introduce us to the history behind the agricultural fair. Marla, thank you so much for joining the program. Uh, And uh, please introduce our listeners to your organization, the International Association of Fairs and Expositions. What do you do? Hey, thanks, Capri. It's a pleasure to be with you today. The International Association of Fairs and Expositions, or commonly known as IAFE, um, we are a global organization which represents the interest and the betterment of agricultural fairs and expos all over the world. And to translate that to your listeners, that would be what we know dearly in the heartland as county fairs and state fairs. Well, and so I can't think of anyone better to uh, to talk to us about the history of the agricultural fair, uh, particularly, uh, you know, in the context of uh, the United States and in the heartland. But I know that its roots aren't just uh, 
you know, here uh, on the continental United States or North America, right? It goes all the way back to um, the other side of the Atlantic. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Agricultural expositions in England in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries were primarily... That's a lot of centuries. <laughs> a lot of centuries were primarily gatherings of the landed gentry to explore uh, and share ideas with one another. Uh, they gave awards for best seeds and best animals. I have a print from the Smithfield show in my office that shows it's a colorized print from the 1800s of champion Hereford bull and some sheep. Um, and, and so these were quite well established throughout England. And that English model came to the United States and the North American continent. Uh, there were two organizations um, in the United States, one in Canada that were chartered by the king to operate a, some type of a agricultural exposition. But the county fair and state fair as we know it today, organized in the United States, really came about in 1811. A gentleman by the name of Elkanah Watson uh, saw the need for wool for the coming War of 1812 so that soldiers' uniforms could be made and manufactured in the United States. And so he imported merino wool decided to merino sheep and, and he decided to show those sheep off to his neighbor because he wanted to get them interested in raising as well. And he organized the uh, Berkshire Agricultural Society in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And in 1812, 1813, they began to have an annual gathering in the fall, celebration of the harvest. And it quickly went from bringing your best animals and in, in, uh, people talking and swapping ideas and swapping genetics, so it were, to include what we now call the domestic arts, the knitting, the weaving, mm -hmm. creating of food products. And, you know, at that very first fair, of course, they had food stands and they actually had a type of ride. And from that time forward, you can watch the expansion of the agricultural fair, the county fair model, which was represented by common citizens uh, having an elected board of director. It just grew westward across the country as, mm -hmm. as our country grew. Right. And, and, you know, would you say that one of the reasons why um, the fairs grew to the West, you know, obviously as as our population moved West, but because of the the presence and the prevalence of, of um, agriculture as kind of as, as the uh, the origin, the heart of, uh, you know, so many of the uh, places in the Midwest, you know, the Connecticut Res uh, Western Reserve and beyond. Oh, absolutely. The you know, we were for many, many years, decades upon decades, an agrarian society. And so uh, to, to do so, to be successful in agriculture, you're always looking for better ways to do things, better ways to improve the genetics of your animals, more efficient ways, the use of new equipment. And so hand in hand with doing that, basically to survive, farmers needed to get together and to compare notes and truly a county fair, a state fair is exactly mm -hmm. that even today. Right. Uh, and um, so I would be curious as well, how many uh, of these agricultural fairs exist uh, in the United States and worldwide? I mean, I can just tell you from, from my backyard in Ohio, I mean, you know, we have county fairs in all 88 counties um, and, and obviously a very large uh, state fair in Ohio. And, and we are very, I think, similar to many of our neighbors. Um, so there has to be 
you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of these agricultural fairs. Yes, certainly. Well, our organization, we are a voluntary membership organization. We represent right now about 1,100 fairs worldwide with members coming from primarily United States, Canada, followed then by Australia and the United Kingdom. But globally, there would be well over 2,000. There are probably 18, 1900 in the United States alone. We simply don't represent every agricultural fair out there because many are just simply tiny, tiny of events mm-hmm. that um, really are, are doing their thing, may not necessarily need our services. Similarly, in Canada, there's a lot of, of particularly in the eastern part, in yeah. Ontario and Quebec. So globally, I, I would have no doubt that we could say there are probably 3000 or more agricultural fairs operating today. Right. Well, I mean, with, you know, all food goes back to agriculture and everyone needs to eat. So and share the sharing those kind of expertise is, is I'm sure, very important to to all of that. With so many fairs, uh, agricultural fairs existing across the United States. Um, how are they similar and how are they different from one another? Sure. Well, we look at the program elements and um, they're, they're all very similar, but they're going to change from community to community. So at the base is the agricultural program, correct? And so the agricultural program, we typically look at that as some sort of a competition, the show ring competition. More often than not, we will see youngsters involved competing through 4-H and FFA 4-H. clubs. Mm-hmm. But we also see many many shows that are the province of, of, adult breeders. Uh, I, I think, for example, mm-hmm. the National Western Stock Show in Denver, I mean, that is like world class. If you're breeding any type of beef, sheep, hogs, you want to be there to show off and improve your genetics. But if you look at what agricultural is, again, look from east to west across the country. In uh, California, most fairs have wine competition, of course, mm, and it's becoming right. more prevalent as we develop, for example, more vineyards in the Midwest and in the east. But it's the province of California fairs. Olive oil, sure. that's the province of California fairs, correct? But if you want Absolutely. to be in New England, you're going to see draft horse uh, competitions. You're going to see oxen in competition, which you obviously don't see that everywhere. Same thing for different types of crops that will be featured. But agriculture is at the heart of it. The other components are what we call competitive exhibits. That would be the quilts, the cakes, the cookies, the yep. photographs. Again, Some of my favorite things, flowers. I mean, there's so many photography. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things. Ab- that get, um, absolutely. And again, the, the variances are going to be some fairs. It may be only a 4-H show and only 4-H exhibitors can compete. Others, I mean, I think about Ohio State Fair. They've got a world-class art museum and world-class art show as part of that fair. The other component it would be food. <laughs> you're, you know, well, you're that's what sh- this show is all about. <laughs> exactly so. right. And used to be, when I talked about the program elements, I would lump food in with commercial exhibits. Um, you know, the knives, the pools, the spas, the mattresses. But really, food has come into its own as a singular popular element, in many instances, driving attendance to the fair. And so yeah. when I think about fairs large and small, 
they're always trying to focus on food, have new food, have crazy food, feature local food. Uh, and again, commercial exhibits are very important in many fairs. It's just a difference of scope. For example, I visited some county fairs in uh, the heartland during the latter, early part of July, and some of them had only local exhibitors, you know, selling insurance or Tupperware mm-hmm. or things like that, while others maybe had some more regional or national companies participating in their commercial exhibits. The final two elements are not necessarily universal to every single fair, but are definitely common. Uh, One of those is obviously the Carnival Midway operations with the rides Mm -hmm. and the games. But in certain parts, particularly the upper Midwest, it's very difficult to get a carnival to come in and route through many county fairs. So they may not have a carnival operation at all. They may have work with a local games dealer for some portable games, for example. And then entertainment can vary from, you know, small uh, stages that feature only local entertainment to, uh, again, thinking about Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin State Fairs. Huge acts, yeah. Huge, huge acts. And it's real, the concert business is really, really big. But those are the program elements. And so what happens is from fair to fair, you're going to see the regional influence. You will also see a difference in scale, right? From small to large. But what is truly the setting point, I think, for fairs is that each one is reflective of its own community. It exists to serve its own community. And we try really not to compare one fair to another because every community is unique. And that community could be strictly a county. It could be multiple counties as a regional event, or it could be, of course, a state fair. Well, I and I'm so glad that you brought this up because um, you know these fairs and and again my own personal experience each fair in just my my immediate regional area is very distinct is very different and you obviously uh, you know being part of the uh, IAFE have to have visited uh, you know dozens if not hundreds of fairs over over the years uh, so, so tell us about one that may stand out to you as as. Uh, unique or or special in its own way. Well, I would like to point out one from your home area, the Holmes County Fair in Millersburg, Ohio. I love that Ohio just keeps coming up. (laughs) It makes me happy. Well, it's very interesting because in all my travels, and and I visit dozens of fairs every year, I rarely go to to one fair in back-to-back years. And in fact, it may be many years before I visit a fair again. But the Holmes County Fair, I had reason to be there in two different years. 2015, the last year that they were at their traditional home, uh, just out the edges of the town and in an area that was so prone to flooding, they were flooded yeah. most years to 2016 when they were there for the opening of their brand new facility, Harvest Ridge, just outside of town. The Holmes County Fair is typical of many county fairs in the heartland, operated uh, by volunteers, dedicated people from the community. The president of the fair that year was a gentleman who had an electrical contracting company and the secretary. Mm-hmm worked for the implement dealer and just good good people who love their community of course millersburg is right there in the heart of amish country that's right that's right 
But what they have done with this change in facility, they had a parcel of land that was donated to them. And then they had a gentleman whose life had been at some point in time impacted or intertwined with the fair, donated a significant amount of money to them to develop that fairgrounds. So they used that seed money and they did a tremendous campaign in the community to build Harvest Ridge. So I got to go see the site in 2015 and see the dreams that they had. I went back in 2016. I was there for the grand opening. And I have to tell you, I was crying because as they, they called off the names of people who had sent them money. It just wasn't the gentleman who left them the estate and the, the six figure or excuse me, the seven figure amount. It was kids Goodness. who donated mm. a portion of their animals that they sold. They, they told the story of one lady in a nursing home who said, I can only afford $5 but I wanted to go toward my fair. And that's just it. You know, throughout the time that fairs operate, fairs change lives. And that to me is the most important. And this Holmes County Fair, I think, is a classic example of how lives throughout that community have been changed through the years so that people from all walks of life wanted to support this new facility. And it is absolutely amazing and continues to grow. They have a full-time manager now on staff, Mm -hmm. and it's a major event business uh, bringing economic impact to the Holmes County area. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about the agricultural fair? Because you know, not everyone is as familiar as you and I, and and that's why we we do these shows to try to introduce uh, some of these concepts um, to a larger audience. Sure. Well, just a couple of things. Number one, uh, when when your listeners hear something about their county fair, another county fair, or the state fair, I think they need to understand that those events come about because of a great deep and abiding passion to produce those events from a dedicated core of volunteers. In the instance of even the largest state fair, it still takes volunteers to make that happen. And it doesn't happen overnight. One of the challenges that fairs are facing in this uh, 2021 is that so many people say, well, you know, it only takes a couple of weeks to put the fair on. And yet so many have operated in uncertainty due to the COVID uh, pandemic. And so, you know, I hope folks understand that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And quite honestly, as fair folk, we want it that way. You know, we want you just to experience the magic of it all. But it does take a lot of work, year-round work. It takes dedicated volunteers and leaders. It takes a dedicated community to support it. Virtually every fair in the United States is a not-for-profit organization. Very few actually receive funding. For example, Ohio is is unique in the world of county fairs that their state supports them. So, yeah, uh, I, yeah so, you know, these are communi- true, true community events. Well, what a wonderful place to uh, to end our discussion. Uh, we're so thankful for you, your willingness to share your insights and expertise to introduce this wider national audience and around the world, because we are available via uh, podcasts everywhere, um, about these fairs that are so special to so many of us across the country. So thank you again. This episode is brought to you by the wine the world is talking about, Washington Wine. From its one-of-a-kind landscapes to a statewide culture of craft and innovation, Washington is made to make wine. 
That's why winemakers from around the globe are coming to Washington to set up shop and why 90-point wines are practically falling from the skies. Ready to sip for yourself? August is Washington Wine Month, meaning it's the perfect time to explore some wineries, 1,050 and counting, and try some of today's most exciting wines. The new Map My Washington Wine app makes it easier than ever, too. You can get to know all the wineries, tasting rooms, and vineyards, find nearby events, customize your ultimate wine trip, and more. Download the free Map My Washington Wine app. That's Map My W-A Wine and get all of Washington wine right in your hand. Washington wine, this is now. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We're now joined by Drake Hokinson and Carol Krotz authors of Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. Drake is retired from Winona State University in Minnesota, and Carol, when she's not writing books, is a physician's assistant. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Drake, I'll start with you. Um, how did did you collectively decide, and then Carol, I want to hear your thoughts, obviously, as well, um, to to start to write a book about county fairs, what was your motivation? Part of it is that there hadn't been a good book about the nature of the American agricultural fair since about 1935. And uh, we decided it was a colorful subject that ought to be photographed and researched. Uh, and it would give us a fine excuse to travel around the country and, and uh, talk to a lot of people and, and make some good photographs. Uh, it just seemed like a natural subject. And I had done some books in the past and Carol and I had done one book together before and we decided uh, this was, this was, this was a subject too good to pass up. Carol, what's your thoughts? Uh, it happened that we were on a long journey uh, when we, um, mm. this idea came to us and we were overseas and we were hiking day after day after day. And, and so you have a lot of time to think about it. And we were talking about what we missed about America. And one of the things was county fairs. And uh, after we talked about it for a long time, we said, somebody ought to do a book about fairs. And then we decided a little later on the journey, that should be us. So that's how that uh, idea came to pass. 
Well, and, and, uh, you know, that, uh, sort of idea became a reality. Obviously, I own the book, uh, and it is beautifully done and, and really captures that, um, that authenticity, um, that we often talk about in, in county fairs that, that really, uh, reflects the, the culture and the flavor of the, the individual communities that they're in. Um, how did you select the, the fairs that you went to? Um, and, and how did you, approach doing this book. I, I recognize that it's it's maybe a decade old now, but there's still some, you know, truths in, at the core of uh, covering these county fairs. Um, Carol, I'll go back to you. Well, when we started, we knew we wouldn't be able to go to every fair in the country, and nor did we want to only select the biggest fairs or the smallest fairs or the eastern fairs. Or, we really wanted it to be a cross-section of America. So what we did was uh, to get uh, an industry publication, and you're familiar, I know, with the International uh, Organization of Fairs and Expositions, and we got their publication and others, and they just have line after line of when county fairs are going to be. So we chose a section of the country each year in the summer when the fairs mostly occur, and we would just uh, put points on a map and try to go from June 3rd to June 8th to this one and June 9th to June 12th at this one. <laughs> and we just um, drew ourselves a little uh, chain of fairs that we hoped to get to. We would never know how long or short a time we want to spend at a fair. And of course, sometimes we'd get there and we'd, they were just getting set up so that left us not as much material. Other times we'd say, well, we'll spend two days at this fair and we'd be there six. So we just tried to get the cross section. And, and I, I feel like we were able to do that in um, uh, our book, uh, Purebred and Homegrown. We were uh, able to go to, uh, I think, about 97 fairs in 38 states or something like that, all across the country from Alaska to Georgia. So, wow. I mean, that definitely you're spanning uh, a variety of, I mean, cl- climates and cultures and, and, and food. Um, you know, Drake, if I'm not mistaken, you have a, a journalism background. How would you approach, um, you know, f- identifying people to interview at these county fairs? Well, we'd show up at any given fair and stop at the fair office, and uh, the first question we'd ask, well, we'd tell them who we are and what we were doing. The first question we would ask is, "Is there are there events at this fair that we should see? Are there people at this fair we should talk to? We're working on this book, and invariably that led to a list of people. Uh, and beyond that, as you wander around, most of good journalism is a good conversation. And uh, as a journalist, you just kind of have a sense of where a good story is and you, and you, you follow your nose. Uh, fair enough. I mean, that, that, makes, that makes quite a bit of sense. Um, and um, I'm sure that you, you were not short of, of potential subjects to, uh, to reach out to and to, to engage at these different uh, fairs. Um, Carol, uh, you mentioned Alaska um, at, uh, you know, as one of the states that you went to, and I'm sure has some of the most unique food traditions uh, on display in some of these uh, competitions. Um, do you have any examples of, of um, you know, comp- the, some of the competitions in Alaska and, and the experience that you had with food up there? Sure. 
Uh, it turned out that uh, the day that we went to the, it was the Deltana Fair in Delta Junction, Alaska. Uh, we had, of mm. course, taken quite a long trip to get there. We actually drove to Alaska uh, and we did other things besides fairs. But uh, when we showed up at the Deltana Fair, uh, we uh, again had looked at um, the program for the fair and we saw that there was a wild blueberry pie contest. So they had to bake their pies with wild blueberries that they'd picked themselves. And we thought that would be an interesting regional thing to uh, photograph and to interview people. Mm -hmm. So we got there and the uh, superintendent who was running the competition was getting all set up as, as would be the case and was kind of nervous though and kind of kept looking at her watch. And it turns out that only two of the three judges came and so she uh, was worried about that. And Drake very graciously offered me to be the third <laughs> blueberry pie judge. And uh, I, of course, I know what I like, but I wouldn't say I was a judge. So we were given strict criteria and uh, I helped judge the wild blueberry pie contest. And so that's an example of uh, a real regional um, food. And uh, there are other ones in the canning competition, Drake. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So at the Deltana Fair, uh, there really was a, a, a very strong regional sense and, and a good sense of how Alaska is quite a bit different from much of the rest of the world. Uh, there was, a, as I recall, a, a contest for canned grayling, which is a which is a Alaska native fish. And uh, we didn't get to sample any of that, unfortunately, but it, it sure looked good. Uh, there were all kinds of other kind of regional things. There was a contest, for instance, for uh, the best um, uh, seal skin mucklucks. And uh, it, it just, you just really, you knew you oh, were wow. over 48. It was quite fun. That sounds unbelievable. <laughs> well, one of the things we tried to do was both find what was universal in fairs under certain circumstances. And then we also tried to seek out that which was regional and unique to that fair. So that was, that was the two pronged approach that we would, um, we would seek, you know, what really tells the story of all fairs and what have they done at their fair to make it um, regionally interesting. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Carol, because um, as, as you know, we're talking about these really interesting things uh, that are, you know, very specific to Alaska, um, you know, these uh, contests the, you know, are pretty much universal at any county fair that you go to. You know, people are fighting for the blue ribbon, you know, giant zucchini or, you know, um, pie, those sort of things, you know, are uh, pretty much ubiquitous no matter where you are, um, you know, and, and the flavor comes through. And the other thing that, that seems universal to me is, is food and the presence of food in one way or the other. Um, I, I want to turn it back over to Drake. Um, and, you know, Drake, can you um, maybe talk a little bit about um, how both sort of the competitions as well as food in particular, since this is, you know, a, a show about food and culture, um, are, uh, you know, kind of a universal thread throughout uh, the, um, the structure uh, and the flavor of county fairs. Sure. Very much the flavor of county fairs. Food plays uh, a role in two ways in, in most agricultural fairs in the country. One, it's uh, uh, the underpinning of a lot of the uh, competition. It's pies, it's the 
tallest corn, it's the biggest pumpkin, etc. And this comes out of the roots of, of the idea of the county fair, which was to educate farmers and gardeners about about creating better, uh, growing better food and preparing better food. So that's a longstanding tradition. And much of the contests that go on in a fair uh, involve uh, food that you make at home that you bring and some judges sample and give you a blue ribbon and therefore give you bragging rights. And of course, the other portion of the other role that food plays at the fair is that most fairs have interesting food, either by a local church group or or traveling vendors or whomever. Uh, uh, you look forward to that food every year because you can't get it anyplace else but the fair. Somehow the French fries made by that French fry uh, trailer at the fair are so much better than the ones you can get at your local fast food place. There's something about fair food that draws people from all over. It's a major reason that a lot of people go to the fair. Normally you don't get to sample the prize winning pie, but by golly, you can get, you know, a fried pickle on a stick. That's right. Uh, And, and Carol, uh, have you, um, you know, Drake just brought up sort of the the fair food that we would think about on you know sort of the the main you know causeway um you know the different booths and trailers that you see um did you end up seeing any or, or tasting more more importantly any um regional uh, specialties um in any of those sort of fair food um uh stands we we did uh, get to t- taste some regional food. For instance, when we were in uh, the Midwest, we didn't have a salmon dinner. But when we were in the Northwest, we for sure had, uh, they didn't have a fried chicken dinner. They had a salmon bake. And um, so it was, it was fun to experience that. On the other hand, in uh, uh, Indiana and... Um, I guess in Indiana especially, we went to a uh, fried chicken dinner that a church put on. This was not a a vendor, but a church put on. But it was uh, fried in lard. And uh, Drake was able to pick up on that. He said, I haven't had chicken this good since my great-grandmother passed. And that's because she made it in lard, too. (laughs) So Not recommended, but it's Those those taste buds bring you back. Yeah. (laughs) Really do. do. And we tried to sample really everything we could uh, at these fairs from from taffy to corn dogs to even cotton candy and uh, just the whole range i don't think i ever saw a salad at a fair but we we tried everything <laughs> that we could get our get our yeah. well that's you're right i mean people look forward to the stuff you know every year you know they 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 know their favorites they know where they want to go and i know in my neck of the woods for example in in Ashtabula county ohio the they have the um the 4H um, Holstein Club runs the Dairy Barn. The Dairy Barn has the best ice cream and the best milkshakes every year. Like it's the only time you can get them, and you just you know um, that that you're going to you know wait all year for that. And it's and the, the lines are long just for that reason. Um, I, I want to wrap up our conversation, um, touching back on something that I think both of you mentioned, and that is these community dinners that are associated with the fair. So they're you know, you know, maybe put on by a community organization or the fa- local fair board. Um, they're not necessarily part of the fair per se, but they are part of you know the the fair culture in the community, uh, bringing everyone together to support the efforts of the fair. Um, and you know, obviously, food, much like that um, lard um, fried chicken, is the centerpiece of that. 
Well, one of the things about the fair is that it's a celebration of community. And we celebrate our community in lots of ways at the fair. We have exhibits of, of things. And one of the things that we come to the fair for is to realize we live in a good place with good people and, and good things going on. And one of the ways that that's pulled together is with different kinds of dinners, either church dinners or maybe a fair board sponsored dinner, as you mentioned, Capri. Uh, one that was particularly memorable to us was uh, every Saturday night or perhaps Sunday night at the Johnson County Fair in Buffalo, Wyoming, they have a sheep feed. Uh, they bring in great lamb briskets and barbecue them, and it's a free event. I think it's a free will donation, but it brings people in from all over the county and probably a good deal further who sit and reminisce and talk to a neighbor they haven't seen in quite a while and eat fabulous lamb in a region that was known for many years for both uh, lamb and beef uh, raising. And it's a, it's a celebration of community that happens once a year and I think is, is fundamentally important to that, to that place and these people. It's really quite a, quite a wonderful thing about, about the fair. Carol, what would you what would you add? Well, I I was remembering too that uh, people get so invested in this that um, they become it becomes central to their lives. And uh, we talked to one woman who was on a committee for doing a church dinner like this, and she said, "Oh yeah, I've been on the committee for uh, a long, long time." She said, "In fact, you have to die to get off this committee." She said, "So so people really value it and." Uh, pour their heart into it. So no question about it. And it is the heart of, of these counties and these communities for year after year, decade after decade and generation after generation. Uh, I really, uh, Drake and Carol, thank you for, for sharing your story. Um, before we go, just remind everybody the name of the book and where they can get it. Well, it's uh, Purebred and Homegrown, America's County Fairs. It's available anyplace that people buy books. I always think it's nicest to order from your local bookstore rather than the big online stores. But it's uh, easily available from U University of Wisconsin Press published. But any place you buy books, you can find Purebred and Homegrown by Hokanson and Kratz. Well, I already own it, so I want to encourage everybody else to go out and get it. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we'll see you at the fair. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.